You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. This is our 324th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a hospitality furniture expert and podcast host, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to know that hospitality is everywhere. Yes, on this show, we talk about the hospitality industry, but really, hospitality is a part of everything we do and everywhere we go. And when it's great or not so great, We know it. We can feel it. Service and how we treat one another in all of our daily interactions make a difference in each other's lives. So let's remember to do our part and be hospitable. A simple smile and a genuine thank you can go a long way and possibly make someone's day who really needs it. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm so happy to have my guest joining me. It is Dan Ryan. He is the founder and CEO of Agency 967, a company that provides the best furniture solutions to the top hotels in the world. Dan has worked in all facets of the hospitality industry, including design, purchasing, and manufacturing since the age of 19. He is also the host of Defining Hospitality podcast, Without further ado, hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Sherry, thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be on and to be interviewed. I've not been interviewed in a really long time, so it's nice to have the the role switched, so I appreciate it. I know. Well, and same for, well, I'd say, I, I think, and for me, I feel I'm more comfortable at this point being the interviewer, but it was such a treat to to come on to your podcast and be a guest and have you interview me. And that was uh, episode 48 um, of your Defining Hospitality podcast. And I love the title you gave it, The Beautiful Industry. So um, thank you for having me. And I'm just honored to have you now on my show. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are you are too kind. <laughs> so um, let's let's go back. I always start with my guests and uh, figure find out 
more about how they got into the industry. So do you want to take us back and, and kind of what, what was it that drew you in? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I know you said since 19, but, um, it actually was earlier. My, my best friend who is still my best friend from when I was 12 years old, his parents had a huge, and it still is the biggest supplier of fabric to the hospitality industry called Valley Forge Fabrics. So I just remember, you know, every Friday night I'd go over to his house. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. He grew up in Rockland County. And every Friday night I'd hear this, you know, and God bless, um, they do a, a family circle at Shabbat and uh, they'd say, God bless Michael Bedner and God bless um, Lenny Parker. And they went through a couple other people and I had no idea who these were, people were from 12 years old onward. Um, but when I went to the University of Southern California, the first person I met was this guy, Michael Bedner's son, Misha, who's now a business partner of mine, and uh, just became kind of indoctrinated into the hospitality industry that way. And um, I don't know, I just got to, Michael is, he was one of the founders of Hirsch Bedner Associates, uh, which is, I think now called HBA, but it's like, I think one of the biggest hotel design companies in the world. So I just kind of, it was all kind of accidental, but I was just drawn to it. And I, I, that's kind of why in exploring, I know what I do, but trying to find out why I do what I do. I, that's why I started this defining hospitality and these long format conversations to really get to the bottom of what hospitality is. Because like you said at the beginning, hospitality is everywhere and it's in everything we do. And it's the most, um, I don't know, it's like the most useful soft skill to have anywhere because it's transferable to anything that we do. Yeah, it really is. And um, I love that you're doing a podcast all about defining it. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, well, well, what I'm, what I'm finding Sherry is that there's really, there's no binary definition. It really like when, as I'm, and again, I'm still in the middle of the exploration, but, but what I'm finding is it's really, it's this, gray center of a Venn diagram that it becomes more about feeling, right? There's, it's not a black and white thing. And I think it's like you said at the beginning again, and like the Supreme court ruled with, <laughs> with respect to pornography is like, you know it when you see it, right? You know, good hospitality when you experience it. You also know that bad hospitality when you experience it as well. So again, it's just like, it's been a really cool uh, curiosity quencher for me um, to hear from all these leaders in our industry, you included, to hear how you guys define it. Yeah, no, well, thank you. I, I mean, I, I was honored to be to be on your show and to talk about it and 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 to give it more thought. I mean, you know, I do. I'm doing this podcast now, my podcast for a while, but it's like all of a sudden sitting back and really thinking about what does hospitality mean to me, and I did say and tie it into my tip today about I feel that it is a feeling and how people make you feel. And when, you know, they can make you feel like, you know, you're on cloud nine or or just the opposite. And at a restaurant, a place that, you know, doesn't get it, you, you might not want to go back to even if the food is amazing. Um, because, because there's something just about how people make you feel and be feeling welcome and, uh, invited that, you know, it really, it really matters a lot. 
and um, when during during your podcast, I mean, who have been some of your guests, and 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 um, or I mean, is there anything that really stands out at somebody of like someone's definition that you were like, wow, I never thought of it that way. You know, um, oh, so most of the guests so far, I mean, they've been everything from, you know, in my world, hotel designers or operators, right? Um, to entrepreneur, you know, what's been really cool is interviewing a, a lot of the entrepreneurs and many of the hotel designers that, that I'm talking to are also entrepreneurs because they have their own firms. But so much of what I find interesting is how hospitality translates into other industries and other businesses. Because, you know, as we build teams and mentor leaders, um, I, I think I just love learning I guess people's best practices of how they they mentor and how they coach and how they really have to, you know, put the other person first. There's this idea of almost servant leadership and culture building around hospitality. And it, it's interesting when I talk to the non-hospitality entrepreneurs, but they're all practicing some form of it or another to make visitors to their business feel comfortable or their own employees feel comfortable. And um I just love hearing the practicalities of how they kind of foster that. And a lot of it has to do with um, it's a lot of it is process driven. You have to give it time. You have to give these moments time to kind of germinate and just hearing best practices. I, there was one guest, um, Arnie Malman. He wrote a book about building company culture that he did in his own company. Um, but he wrote this book called Worth Doing Wrong. And a lot, it's all about making everyone in the company and everyone outside the company, like a UPS guy coming in or a client coming, who's coming in? How do you approach each of those types or archetypes of guests? How do you make them feel comfortable? And it's called worth doing wrong because when you're building a culture and you're trying to make others feel comfortable, sometimes depending on what what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, you don't really know what it is, especially as you're starting up. So it's worth trying as many things as possible until you find it right. Because every location, every person, every archetype is different. Yeah, no, very true. Very true. So let's talk, I want to talk a little bit about your your company, Agency 967, because, you know, I've done over 300 episodes to this point, but I have not talked to a furniture expert in the hospitality industry. You're my first. <laughs> right. And after 324 episodes, it it's took, amazing. It took me a while. It took me a while to find you, but I got the right guy and <laughs> to talk about it. But tell me, I mean, how did you, how did you land into that specific part of the hospitality industry? You know, it was kind of all, again, everything seems to be accidental, but there was this gravitational pull towards it. So I was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. Um, That gentleman, Michael Bedner, I spoke to, he kind of took me under my wing. He was the hotel designer. And um, I started off as studying architecture, but I was also on the rowing team at USC. And I couldn't get up at 4.30 in the morning and also be in the studio all night. So... I did rowing and I switched to literature, but towards the end of college, I wanted to try design. Uh, so I called up Michael and I said, Hey, can I intern there and, you know, just get a taste of it. And just the people, the projects, the, 
the the entertaining the everything was just so much fun and and it was just like he was like the ultimate host and i just wanted to emulate that um so then on the design side then i went to work for a, a developer um that business didn't go very well and then i worked for a general contractor that was building a project and then i was like oh my god i got to i want to get back into hospitality cuz sometimes i feel like when you Ex- exhibit the things or experience the things that you don't want to be doing it those are almost as instructive as the things you do want to be doing yeah uh so then i called someone that i met through my friend growing up uh mike michael Be- uh, michael dobin who was my best friend growing up and still we are today uh i called a guy who bought furniture for hotels and i was living up in san francisco at the time his name was steve higgins he's no longer with us but he was a tremendous mentor and I started buying furniture for hotels. And then um, I went to work. uh, I started a company when I was 26, acting as a distributor for an Asian manufacturer of furniture and just kind of found it. And what's interesting is that like, I've learned so much about furniture. If you asked me when I was a kid, what I wanted to be when I grew up, like furniture was not in there. But I think what it is, is that furniture and the it's not just the furniture, but it's all the steps from project management to customer service to problem resolution, which is like getting um, the furniture made or designed, then turned into sawdust and made and then delivered and then problem resolved. What it helped me realize is that it's really this whole journey. And what what lights me up about what I do is I get to make sure that everyone's having the best possible journey towards opening their hotel. Then ultimately, you know, you get to stay in it or have a drink at the bar and like you get to experience it. Another thing that I find really interesting about doing furniture within the hospitality world is whenever I'm at a cocktail party or a dinner and people ask what I do, they're like, I didn't know people do that. (laughs) And it's amazing how many niche industries there are just that do everything. And um, a lot of people just think things just appear or start out a certain way, but it's amazing how many people go into turning these built environments into something really special and warm. It's so funny you say that because it made me, it made me laugh because um, when I moved to New York in 98 and I was still trying to figure out what I want to do with my career and I dabbled in several things and I discovered that there's something called a food stylist and a prop stylist that like, you know, did the the beautiful food plates and picked out the plates and did the food for the magazines and everything on TV. And that was like a career I never knew about. And I had a moment where I thought that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and if you really drill into what they do and their craft, and it's amazing how when you see those photos of what's plated, the, the amount of effort and thought and care that goes into making those photograph well from how the plate looks to the lighting to the photographer it's amazing and there's a whole industry that supports that yeah no it is so it's it's amazing and yeah you have you have a niche in what you do so so your clients are have been primarily hotels and and not not just one off restaurants but i'm assuming hotels with hotels comes the whole, the whole gamut of, of restaurants and rooms and all that. Well, yeah. Well, within my business, we have a, we focus on kind of two areas of hospitality. One, one is in the hotel, the guest room. So that's everything from custom furniture to custom lighting. And then 
so there's a specialization in that. And then it's outdoor furniture. And I started uh, working with some of the best outdoor furniture companies about 10 years ago. And what's interesting is that over the pandemic, even though I don't do much uh, restaurant work, over the pandemic, the outdoor furniture business went through the roof. And I'm very lucky for that because um, every single hotel, restaurant, office, you name it, they all were activating their outdoor spaces because no one knew what was going on. And I guess we have to be outside if we want to try and stay in business. Yeah, no, it really did. And actually that that ties into um, my question from my last guest. So let me ask it to now on episode 323, I had on Haley Meyer. She is the founder and owner of Cafe Pana, an Italian-inspired ice cream and coffee shop in New York City's Gramercy neighborhood, and um, it's fantastic. Come into the city. Definitely should go. Um, So she wants to know, how have hotel and restaurant design needs changed since the pandemic? And if if those business models have changed, has it shifted how you have had to provide your service? Well, mostly the way it changed, like in the most impactful way is hotels were really just struggling to keep their doors open. So typically a hotel would always take some of their operating income and put it into a deferred capital expenditure budget. Um, But a lot of the brands and a lot of just the ownership groups just said, you know what, we just, we need that money to just keep the doors open, keep payroll going, um, pay real estate taxes, you name it. So the real change was that just a lot of work just didn't happen. Uh, a lot of work that was planned just got put on hold. Um, you can also talk about, like I said before, just the thing I saw was just the tremendous activation of outdoor um, outdoor spaces. But I was just at this Skift conference uh, last week. And while travel, there's talk of a recession right now in general, but they were saying, uh, I think the... There was someone from J- Jones Lang LaSalle and someone from Highgate basically saying the same thing where there's no travel recession in sight. Um, but what people are going to start noticing, especially this summer, is you know in cutting back staff and not maintaining furniture and, and deferring capital expenditures, hotel guests moving forward are going to, they're paying so much money for these rooms. The guests are going to become way more discerning where they may have let kind of dilapidated rooms or rooms that need some TLC off, now they're going to start demanding better rooms, especially for the prices they're paying. I don't know if you've looked at any going away at all this summer, but the rates are just through the roof. So it's a good, it's good. It's not like the hoteliers are making money hand over fist. Uh, In some cases they are, but they're also just trying to get back to normal to where they were in 2019 before the pandemic. Yeah, no, I have, I have, I have looked at hotels I, and I've, I've, I was just away last week too, but I've, uh, yeah, hotel. It's interesting because I did travel or it was, you know, at some point during the pandemic and I realized those prices like going away all of a sudden, those are pandemic prices. And now everything just seems like beyond what I would expect. Um, so yeah, prices are definitely up for, for hotels and travel and summertime is typically, I think, a a high season too, but um, yeah, it is interesting. What, um, who are some of the uh, clients you've, you've worked with over the years? And, and, and also uh, 
you were on the West Coast and now you're East Coast. So when did that transition happen? Oh, yeah. So I was in California for about 15 years. And then my wife, who grew up in California, wanted to move to New York City. And I grew up in New Jersey. I never wanted to go back East. Uh, but she really wanted to. And you mentioned all those stylists before. She's a wardrobe stylist. Ah. Um, so she, for her career, she wanted to get away from the celebrity stuff and then move to do more commercial work in fashion. So she's like, let's go. So we moved to New York city and then we were there for 15, I guess it's been like 15, 18 years in the New York Metro area. So from Manhattan to now with the pandemic, we, we moved up to Connecticut and we're like living a farm life and it's great. <laughs> so, so then does your, are you, have your clients then been East coast primarily? Or are you all over the map? Oh, it's all over. It's really wherever the, wherever the projects are. I mean, really we're, I'm working on projects globally. Um, yeah. So it, it's all, it, it's all over. And especially now, um, you know, it does, it, it's almost like, it doesn't matter where you are. Right. It's yeah, like, you, you, that's where, that's where uh, network and relationship and everything just matters. Right. People want to work with the people that they know, like, and trust. So is there someone you've worked with over the years that was like, I, hate, I mean, I don't want to say your favorite, but something that you were just, you loved, you loved that project or something that's continued on, you know, over the years, I would imagine, I mean, hotels have so many different outlets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So then on that side, I mean, I, everything worked on projects, everything on the, on the boutique slash independent side to like the big, the big brand like mega hotel side. So on the smaller side, it's everything from, you know, a Kimpton to a Four Seasons to uh, uh, you, you name the independent, like a proper hotel, just like those really small, grounded in sense of place, really unique to what they are, hotels, to the big, huge convention centers for the front of the Marriott's and the Hyatt's and the Hilton's. Um, and kind of all things in between. Um, it's really been a great um, project experience. And with respect to things that I like, it's almost, and I, I, I say this with, with like a, a smile, but I have almost lost all sense of aesthetic and, and taste when it comes to the, pro the product that I'm building. Because to me, my main goal is to execute the designer's vision, right? So it's almost like I don't really have favorites now. I know when I do a really good job and when my manufacturers that I work with do a great job, it's with when we execute other people's visions, right? It's putting them first. And again, I, that's part of that whole gravitational pull to hospitality, right? You're talking furniture, you're talking hotels, projects, but really it's like, how do those people feel at the end of the project is what keeps me in the game, so to speak. Yeah. Do you, and how big is your team? How many people do you work with? Um, right now, I think we have five, I just added one more. So five people. So much smaller than we were before the pandemic, but just really keeping our eye on the ball and waiting for the tsunami of work that's going to be coming um, in the, in the near future, as the guests become more dis discerning, like I said, and as all of that defrayed capital expenditure needs to get fixed. Yeah. Well, I mean, is your industry, are there a lot of other agencies that do similar work to what you do? 
uh, or is it very competitive? Uh, it, it is competitive. Um, there are, it's mostly regional and what we would be cons- called would be manufacturers representatives. So we work with each person like me throughout the country works with a bunch of different manufacturers. Um, and then they're there looking for projects as they come up and trying to find the right fit for, but for manufacturer to project designer, owner, brand, and kind of checking all those boxes. Um, it is, I would say, a competitive space, but it's a small space. Um, and, you know, I think if, if you look at, uh, generally speaking, the residential furniture market or the fr- like the home furnishing markets, which hospitality furniture would be a subset of that. Um, however big the that furniture market is, I would say that the hospitality uh, project-based side is, is probably about 10% of the pie. So again, it's a real, real, real niche. Yeah. Well, it's cool. You, it's cool. You found it, you're in it, you're doing it. <laughs> There's work. Yes. Good work. Lots of work. So that's, that's wonderful. Okay. On that note, let's take a little break. Uh, we will come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. 
I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Dan Ryan. He's the founder and CEO of Agency 967, and he is the host of the Defining Hospitality podcast. Okay, Dan, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. You ready? I am ready. All right. I hope. Cool. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Out at a restaurant. Indoor dining or al fresco dining? Is it winter or summer? I, it's up to you. Okay, then I would go al fresco because it's always nice to be outside. <laughs> cool. Um, wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? It's so dependent on how I feel, but I'm going to go cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu if it's known for it. Hmm. I like that. How about small plates or large plates? I think large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Hmm. Communal table. Okay, a few more. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? You know, I want to choose all-inclusive charge just because I think that that really needs to be tried to see if it really, really works because um, I think it will really, it could, if done well, help everyone. Yeah, good reasoning. Okay, being the interviewer or the interviewee on a podcast? You know, I'm loving your questions and you're making me feel very comfortable. Uh, and although I have not been interviewed many times, um, I think I'm, I like this part. It's pretty cool. Okay, Thank you. good. <laughs> <laughs> How about um, hotels or Airbnbs? Ooh, okay, so for if I'm traveling by myself for business, definitely hotel. If I'm with family, uh, I'd prefer an Airbnb. That's interesting. I was also thinking you probably get some nice perks out of what you do with travel. <laughs> I, I could, but I try not. I try not to ask. Although I found myself asking um, recently in a couple of cases, and uh, pro- more often than not, I ne- I try not to ask. Yeah, that's. I mean, actually, I'm similar that way. I don't ask for. I, I don't ask, but I mean, it's nice when people offer, but yeah. <laughs> so, okay. The last two are cheese plate or dessert. Cheese plate, especially if it's got the stinkiest of the stinky cheeses. Ah, fantastic. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. Ta-da, that's the game. Oh, wow. Although I've never lived in Brooklyn. I think if I did live there, I would really enjoy it. There's, I, I find there's so many more nooks and crannies in Brooklyn. Well, I feel people, I feel so many people I know in the industry who, once they have kids, they live in, Brooklyn is one of the places they move out to and they love it. You know, they have, they they have like neighborhoods out there and it's very green, cute streets and, <laughs> and you're yeah, not we tend, My city. wife and I, yeah, we tend to do everything backwards. We moved to New York, to Manhattan when we were like, I don't know, uh, 30 which is when many of my friends who lived there from high school were moving out having kids. So we were like salmon moving into town. Then we started having kids in the city. Um, 
and raised three kids there. And then in the pandemic, we basically skipped the whole Brooklyn thing and moved straight to Connecticut. So um, again, I think the pandemic made a lot of choices for all of us that perhaps might've been difficult over time to make on our own. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. People, I, I found people, people in Manhattan who were possibly leave thinking about leaving um, when the pandemic happened, they, they just went for it. They made the decision. Um, I stuck it out. I'm still here. <laughs> no, I'm glad yeah. it's, it's great. And you know, I'm, I'm there, I still have an office down in Soho and I'm, I'm there quite a bit, but you know, I gotta say, I miss the energy I get off of people. Uh, I was asking my youngest daughter, I said, Hey, you know, what do you, what do you miss about New York city the most? And she was like, dad, I miss when I would walk with you and you would just talk to random people on the street. <laughs> you know, now it's like I go for a run and I'm running past turkeys or seeing a raccoon. There's just not as many people around. Yeah. Well, the people are back in the city. If you want to come visit. <laughs> yes. I- Full force. It's the point where, you know, you got to, it's harder. You got to be looking up when you're walking down the street, not just looking, don't walk, looking down your phone. Not like you ever should do that, but sidewalks are crowded. Um, People are back. And with the weather, the weather, you know, the weather changing is bringing everyone out too. So. Well, that's what would usually happen. We'd have all these kids and a dog and every like February, March, we'd be like, we got to get out of here. Our apartment's too cramped. And then it would turn like it is now. And we'd be like, okay, we made it. It's great. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing like it. Um, so I, this, these shoulder seasons of the fall and the spring are just the perfect time in New York City. Yes. Uh, yes, I agree. Okay. So for industry news, I picked out an article that was in the New York Times today. It's um, entitled, Leave the Sweatshirt at Home, Dining Dress Codes Are Back. A number of restaurants are betting that Americans want to get gussied up again, but not everyone is thrilled about the fashion screening. And this is by Priya Krishna. Um, I don't know. I thought it would be interesting to talk with you a little about this because I've noticed, I mean, everywhere has over the past year, few years, if not longer, has gotten pretty casual. I mean, even tasting menu restaurants, the considered the fancier menu-wise restaurants in the city, uh, you don't have to get dressed up. You can wear jeans. You could you could wear whatever you want. No one's, it's gone. It, it's been pretty casual. And this article is, it was pointing out uh, uh, several restaurants around the country that are, are asking guests to, to kind of fit the decor and get a little, get a little fancy. And one of them is Angie Marr's new place, and I'll see if I pronounce it right. I think it's Letois-Chavoy. Le it's if I was just in Paris, so I'm trying to. Oh, so was French. I. Re- were you? Amazing. Yeah. Um, I was just yeah. I was there last week. I'm gonna talk my solo dining experience. So cool. Um. Oh man, I love it there. It was so great. We went went with the kids. Um. I did something that I think you would really like, and we did it towards the end, and I would highly recommend this for anyone going. We went on a food tour, and we had uh, someone toured us around, and gave. we went so deep into the boulangerie and like the different kinds of baguettes and croissants and how the rating system happens through the whole AOC uh, system that they have. Then we went to a chocolatier, then we went to a cheese place, then to a pate place and a wine place. And it was amazing. And I wish I did it at the beginning 
because the food is always so amazing in Paris, but then knowing all the things that I just learned, I think would have made the trip even more impactful than it was. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I know, I know those food tours can be, I mean, can be, they're usually, they're outstanding and, and you learn, you learn so much, um, about the, the secret little gems. And that's, um, I didn't, I didn't do any of that. I guess you'd say I did my own food tour. (laughs) Um, I was biking around, I was biking around and walking around. The weather was actually, I mean, it was outstanding. It was just springtime in Paris. You could not, could not get any better. Um, but you know, tying it with this article, I say, I mean, in Paris, I like I went one night to a restaurant called uh, Le Chateau Briand. And in my head, the name like that and what I knew about the chef and the restaurant, this is like in my in my head, I'm thinking it's fancy, even though I know it's not. I knew it was really a bistro. But I show up and it's like it's just a cool, very like high energy, almost like a Balthazar sort of uh, mm. bistro setting. Um that was it was fantastic, but uh, the, the the in Paris even it's I mean that you can go to some of the fancier hotels and yes things are a little more formal, but I found things are pretty casual. So it's interesting. Um, I don't. I think there are a few restaurants that are you know they want people to to kind of dress for the occasion and and I think that's that's cool to kind of mo- you know try to motivate people to. To dress up, but I'm finding still mostly that things are pretty, pretty low key. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting as we're br- bringing up Paris and uh, that whole idea of um, AOC, not the Congress uh, Congressperson from New York, but the whole idea of how you rate things from food to what is luxury to um, how you make bread and cheese and wine. <clears throat> It's interesting. We stayed at the Kimpton um, uh, Honoré in Paris, and it's a luxury Kimpton, so it's really, really cool. And one of the general, the general manager, Letitia, was telling me that when they open, because luxury, there's this idea of what luxury is, right? It's everyone working in the hotel is in a suit. Um, they have nice shoes on, a tie. But at this Kimpton, a lot of the other luxury properties couldn't get it around their head that this luxury property, the team working there was wearing like cool sneakers. And it just made them think differently about like, what is luxury? And I I think it's the question you're asking, but upside down. If we were to bring it back to the US side and and having dress codes, you know, I just went to broad, uh, see a show on Broadway with my kids. And I just... (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, I would go into Broadway and my dad and mom would like make us wear a tie and a sport coat and we'd go eat somewhere on 46th Street. And it was like, it was a really nice thing. Um, going just now, I mean, people are showing up in like sweatpants yeah. and it's <laughs> it's just, it's wild. But I also think, you know, on the cheeky side, going to a fancier restaurant, a more luxurious restaurant where they're asking for a dress code. Um I'm wondering if a lot of it has to do with, you know, like me, I see all my pants that were kind of slim fitting before COVID (laughs) and then after COVID, they don't even fit anymore. Uh, So maybe people are just looking for a chance to get out again and recharge and they had to buy some new clothes that are probably newer and nicer. Um, But I think everyone's kind of starved for 
a different experience after being in your elastic waistbanded pants for almost two years, you know? So I think I am sure there's a need for it. And I, I, I think it's cool. Look, I think everyone should be welcome. Um, if someone can't, I remember I've been to places before where I don't have a sport coat and the maitre d' is like, excuse me, sir. And then he'd give me some old ill-fitting sport coat, but you know, it's kind of like, what's the experience you want your guests to have? And you want, you want to be seen as, so I get it. And it's kind of exciting. Also my wife being a stylist, like I said, um, we we just went to this gala, um, fundraiser. I think it was uh, two weeks ago and we hadn't been to one in years. And jokingly, we didn't do it, but she's like, Oh, it's cocktail. It's business cocktail attire. She said, with on the group text of all the people at our table, she's like, you know, I that to me means ball gowns, you know. So in a way, I think people are just starved to get dressed up again because I think we we forgot what it was like, and it's also um, a nice way to try something new that you may have uh, fallen off the wagon from, so to speak. Yeah, I agree with all that, and it was interesting. There was a part in the article it did say it with. Um, it was something from Eric Repair, the chef and um, co-owner of uh, Le Bernardin, saying that they actually, they dropped their requirement for men to wear jackets during the pandemic because of like sanitary sort of reasons more than anything with the pandemic, like sharing right. sharing a coat, which was, I thought was an interesting part of this. But I'm, I'm, I would like, I have not been to Angie's restaurant yet, and I would like to go and I like have that. I I mix. I would. I feel an excitement to get the reason to get dressed up and to go out and have a night on the town and 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 I think there's a time and place for it. And I was, you know, it's with your your comment about um, the theater. I, I I agree with that. People are very casual, but I I live near Lincoln Center, and I do notice that people get very dressed up now and fancy to go to the ballet and the opera and for that night out, that's where I'm seeing people really like go for it and special occasion, which is really nice to see, you know? Well, Alexa and I would, we'd love going to the opera and, but there's so many times we'll get dressed up because it is fancy. You know, you're walking into Lincoln center under those huge Chagall's and you know, you're making your way up those red carpeted stairs to go see and, whatever's whatever's going on uh, but then you know i'd say 85 percent of the people are like that and then you know you get the other people who are in shorts and flip-flops and it's uh it's a it's an interesting mix but again like i also think everyone should experience opera and ballet and if you're not dressed up in yeah. a suit that's cool but like i think everyone should experience that that those art forms <laughs> Yeah, and I'll just close out this this part of the show saying in the article too, Angie has something saying how absolutely no flip flops are allowed at a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> so what do you do when someone rolls up in there? Do you have a I don't like, well I I I ha- I don't know. I don't see flip I mean, I don't really see flip flops out much except like during the day, like, you know, brunching or something in the city. Mm. But I don't think I, I highly doubt someone would show up like that, but I guess she says no. I guess she is a doormat. <laughs> so, um, well, check out the article. It was a, a pretty long piece, and there's 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 more in it. We just we just touched on it. So, 
Okay. So for, for my solo dining experience this week, I am talking about a place I went to in Paris and it's called Septime. So here's the rundown. The location, 80 Rue de Charonne in the 11th arrondissement in Paris, France. The concept, it's a seasonal modern French plates restaurant offered as a tasting menu and it has optional wine pairings. The chef and owner is Bertrand Grabeau. And why did I go? Well, I'd always heard amazing things about this place. It's very hard to get into. It has a Michelin star and I wanted to meet the chef. So my experience... This is one of those places that, yes, I booked the restaurant reservation at this restaurant before I booked my flight. It was one of those I knew it was hard to get into. And I'm like, well, if I can get the reservation, then I'll like I kind of work my dates around it. I mean, I'm that I guess you'd say crazy. Um, But anyways, I got my reservation was for two people and I knew someone in Paris that I had invited to go with me, but they couldn't they couldn't go. So um, I showed up by myself and they were welcoming to have a solo diner. I was seated at a, a two-top near the kitchen, um, a lovely service. I met the chef after, super nice, and um, I had a really great experience. So what did I get? Well, it was a five-course tasting menu. Um, it included, it started with like a little pita with like a sort of hummus dip. There was a ricotta spread that had little potato chips like kind of around it. It looked like sunshine on a plate. It's fantastic. Um, there's a sashimi tuna salad with vinaigrette. Uh, the main uh, meat course was docked with spring vegetables. And the dessert was a like a granito with fresh strawberries and a little ice cream. You know, they didn't provide me with the menu, I realized. So I have my photos, but I don't have the exact wording of what everything was. But that's my, my basic description. And it was all delicious, my take. Um, fresh, seasonal, interesting combinations clean, light, you know, I left feeling good. It wasn't heavy. It was like a light, you know, it was a tasting menu, but it was, it was one of those, like, you know, kind of the way you want to eat. You didn't feel um, very full after, just satisfied. Uh, the ambiance. So this is, it's casual. It's, it's modern, like minimalistic. It's kind of intimate space, but it wasn't, it wasn't for this restaurant. It wasn't, people weren't dressed up, pretty casual. Um, lots of natural light it's, um, off the street. There's an, an open kitchen. And I noticed there was a little garden in the back too. Um, I could see when you, there's a bathroom window that, that looked um, lovely. And it's a really great neighborhood in Paris. I'd say it's perfect for a solo meal or a date or even that front. They had one big, large table uh, for a group. Uh, interesting tidbit. Um, aside from its Michelin star, this restaurant has been on the world's 50 best restaurants list. It was number 15 in 2019 and number 24 in 2021. Fun fact. Uh, so my personal fun fact. The day before I went to Clamato, which is... Um, Next to Septim, it's same same chef. Uh, they don't take reservations. It's a seafood spot, and I had a great meal there. I had some oysters and tuna crudo and crab. It was fabulous. Um, and after my lunch, I actually walked down the block. He has a pastry shop, and I picked up uh, this cream and maple syrup tartlet called a Clama Tart, which I think got its start at Clamato, uh, where it was so popular, the the chef opened a bakery down the block. He has a few spots. He has those three, and he also has a wine bar um, that I peeked my head in. It was very cute. Um, And then the next day, I went to lunch at um, his personal partner is also a chef. Her name is Tatiana Leva, and she has a restaurant called Le Servan, and I had a lovely tasting menu. No, I didn't do a tasting menu there. It was a la carte, but um, I had a lovely lunch there. 
Um, so the cost of my meal at Septim was 73 euro. Um, it's, I think it's, it's popular for many reasons, but one is the price. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a really good price for a tasting menu. And um, I also had some sparkling water and a double espresso. And they also were donating $1 for chefs, towards chefs for the Ukraine. So um, that was the total. And would I go back? Yes. And their website is septim-sharon.fr. There you go. There's my rundown. Did you go there, <laughs> Dan? Uh, so actually, we went to, we met up with friends that were going to Clamato, no reservations. Mm-hmm. And we had our kids with us and they're like, nope, not going to work. It looked amazing. I wanted to go there so badly. So we walked around the corner to a place called Le Chardonneau or Le Chardonneau. Um, It was freaking amazing. Um, And they just sat us out on the table. There were the five of us. And then uh, we met up with two friends um, and had a fantastic dinner, Le Chardonneau, C-H-A-R-D-E-N-O-U-X. They, they were so awesome. The drinks were great. The food was from another planet. So good. So I, and it's literally around the corner from Clamato because we went there and walked around the corner. That's, um, I just wrote it down. I mean, that neighborhood, it's a really, it's a really great neighborhood. Um, I don't know. I think there's a, I mean, Paris has so many, so many awesome restaurants. You kind of can't go, go wrong. <laughs> well, what I liked about this area with Le Chardonnay and also, um, Clamato and the other ones, it's kind of, it's kind of a cool little neighborhood where it reminded me of um, what I love so much about eating in the East Village in New York, where, you know, you have chefs with, they're able to pursue their passion and experiment with things Mm -hmm. because you're not in like the super duper high rent district where you have to like have a thing. Um, You can be more experimental and it, and between Clamato and this Le Chardonnay was it was fantastic. Yeah. And so if you're in the 11th, I would definitely recommend going there. You know, another cool trick that I learned, because every if anyone's going to France this summer, um, everything is sold out. So get your reservations to museums and everything in advance. But at Versailles, we, we tried to get tickets. We were very last minute um, and it was all sold out. But it's not. it doesn't have a Michelin star, but I think it's in the Michelin guide. It's... Um, door like gold of gold um it's an alan ducasse restaurant in versailles so you can buy a ticket that you can go up there and get like a glass of champagne in the restaurant which is in the the chat in in the castle or in 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 versailles have and we wound up having a meal up there and then you just go right downstairs and you cut the whole line and you're you're right in in versailles ah good tip good to know yeah yeah that's great yeah, and I was gonna say there's another another restaurant I went to on my last trip uh, to Paris called Mocha Nuts. That's down the block. It's actually right across the street from from this pastry shop I went to. That's um, uh, husband wife team or the chefs, and it's it's a very it's a very intimate, fabulous restaurant there. Um, so yeah, yeah, awesome. Paris, so funny you were there. I mean, lots of people I've been seeing, at least through my social media. Um, it's been it's been the destination uh, for for a lot of uh, industry people. Um, I think for me, it was my t- first trip back to Europe since the pandemic. So um, same exciting. Okay, so it's time for the final question. My next guest is Aisha Nurjaya, which I 
think is how she pronounces her last name. We'll find out on my show. And she is the chef and partner at Chouquette and Chuka restaurants in New York City. And she's the culinary director for the Bowery Group, which is um, Vicki Freeman, who was on my show in episode 307. That's her restaurant group. She's a restaurateur there. So, um, Dan, can you please ask a question for Aisha? Um, yes. Let's see. I'm just looking at uh, Shuka right now. It appears that she's in the same group as Cook Shop, which is one of my favorite restaurants. Yes, Cook Shop, um, Rosie's, and Rosie's, Vicks, Cook Shop, yeah, and Chouquette. Yes. Uh, let's see. My question is: What are the odds that she puts at New York City keeping the outdoor dining pods without um, more? I guess, restrictions. Because to me, that was one of the silver linings of the pandemic, especially in New York City. Um, I hope it turns into less car traffic and more foot and bicycle traffic with really cool outdoor dining experiences. Okay, I will find out. Yeah, it's. I don't know what the... It is like... Uh, not sure what the future holds with all the pods and the outdoor dining, but... Um, I will find out. And who knows what the future holds with anything. But again, I'm just asking for, ask her for Vegas odds on it. Okay. Okay. Well, but I know they have outdoor dining. So, okay. I will find out. I'll get her odds. <laughs> and um, that's the show. So wonderful having you on. Thank you so much for joining me. I feel like I could talk with you another couple hours. We could just chat industry in Paris. So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. You. So much. Thank you so much. I appreciate your just getting to know you and and your leadership and and it's been wonderful to get to know you and I I look forward to our uh, continued relationship. Uh, thanks, same. So my guest today has been Dan Ryan. He's the founder and CEO of Agency Nine Six Seven, and he's the host of Defining Hospitality podcast. His websites are nine six seven dot com and defininghospitality.live. Definitely check out his podcast. I believe it's on all different platforms and um, it's a really great show. And you can follow him on social media. He's at the Daily Dan Ryan and at Defining Hospitality on Instagram. And my handles are at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. And my Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and All in the Industry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also in iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Kevin, and thanks again to Dan. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I will be back on June 8th with a new show. That's my show with Aisha. Um, and uh, I hope you stay safe and well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.